We'll have some prospects, we'll have some suspects in part two of our talk with BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon next on Baseball HQ Radio. by Downing. Swinging. There's a drive into left center field. That ball is going to be out of here. It's gone. It's 7-15. There's a new home run champion of all time and it's Henry Aaron. The fireworks are going. Here's the pitch on the way. A swing and a foul. Left field. Way back. Blue Jays win it. The Blue Jays are Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for the week of February 18th, show number 5 of the 2012 Fantasy Baseball Season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and in addition to BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon, we'll have our regular contributors from the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our National League analyst is Harold Nichols. Our American League newsman is columnist Matt Beagle, who will also be our Market Pulse commentator this week with part two of his analysis of the simulation draft pool looking this week at position players. In his regular minor league minute, Rob Gordon doing double duty, looking at Cincinnati shortstop prospect Billy Hamilton, and boy can he run. And in his master notes, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talks about the continuing myth of the rotation ace. It's another big show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? There's a new Cuban star in the big leagues. We gotta talk some baseball. And to open our show, as always, our League Watch News reports. Matt Beagle is on deck with players from the American League, but leading off, our National League report, and it's our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Nick, one of the things we prize in fantasy baseball, especially in middle-round, middle-value guys, is consistency. And Aaron Hill, the second baseman in Arizona, has been really anything but. Uh, the baseball forecaster Ron Chandler's annual book of fantasy baseball points out that Aaron Hill has had a two ninety one batting average, 36 homers, and 21 stolen bases, but never done it all in one year. So the question is, what kind of player is Aaron Hill, and what can we think about him going into this uh, 2012 fantasy season? Yeah, you know, Aaron Hill has, has done uh, something strange almost every season. The one thing that's very consistent about Aaron Hill is he makes solid contact. Here's a guy whose contact rate stays right right in a low range, between 84 86% over the last four seasons. So he, he makes good contact, but beyond that, as you said, things have been, been a bit unusual. Uh, in 2009, he hit 36 home runs, the result of a high, for him, home run per fly rate of 15%. Uh, in 2010, he had 26 home runs. That's still pretty good, but his batting average fell off to 205. Last season, the home runs disappeared completely, and he stole a bunch of bases. So 20-some bases, to, to be exact. So here's a guy who's produced some decent dollar value, but you never know where it's going to come from, uh, and that makes him a, a big question mark going into any particular season. If you look at the skills, at what you're dealing with with, with uh, Aaron Hill, uh Expected batting average seems to fall in between 246, 258, somewhere in that range. So uh, he, he did bounce back last year from that horrible 205 batting average to 246. Uh, the home runs disappeared because of a 4% home run per fly rate. So I think we could say the home runs are likely to come back up, maybe not at top 20 again, but somewhere in the, in the teens, double-digit home runs. Stolen bases came out of nowhere because of a a high stolen base opportunity percentage, 22% last season. But he's a guy with below average speed. Uh, So I would not count on the stolen bases again. So Aaron Hill is going to be productive probably somehow, about a 250 BA, maybe double-digit home runs. But uh, if you draft Aaron Hill, count on some inconsistency. And this could be one of those instances, Nick, where a lot of owners are going to look at this guy and think, I can't 
afford to gamble on this because I don't know what I'm going to get. But the chances are, if you look at his history, you're going to get something. Yeah, I mean, that's what you, you know, if you, that you're all, you're all going to get something out of Aaron Hill. I mean, every year he's produced something of value since he's been a full-time full-time player the last three seasons. So uh, th- there is there is certainly that possibility. And we're projecting 17 homers, 13 stolen bases, and mid-70s in the RBI. So if he meets our projections, and of course they're they're always subject to some variation, especially with a guy like this, that's not a bad season. You might be able to sneak a guy like this $10, $12 worth of value for, for a little less money, which wouldn't be bad. If you're also looking for a second baseman in St. Louis, Tyler Green, we've just heard, has been handed the job. It's his to lose in spring training. Yeah, they're, they're going to give Tyler Green a shot at the second base job in St. Louis. And Tyler Green looks kind of tantalizing in some ways. I mean, here's a guy with, who had some power in the second half last year. Uh, he's got some very good speed skills, uh, decent decent speed index he's had over the last several seasons. So uh, looks like a guy who could, uh, could be productive if he can win the job. But the thing to watch out with about Tyler Green, uh, in spite of those, those good skills that we look at and, and say, uh, yeah, there's something possibly there, Here's a guy whose batting averages over the last three seasons at about 100 bats per year have been 222, 221, 212. And the expected batting average is right in the same range. So while he may have some power and may have, have a little bit of power and a little bit of speed, um, here's a guy who may hurt you in terms of B.A. Um, with, with expected batting averages like, like that, don't count on the batting average going back up in spite of the fact that his walk rate improved over the last two seasons, in spite of the fact that his batting eye improved. Uh, his ex- expected batting average stayed stayed anchored in the 220s. And it's interesting, he does have good speed, and his ground ball percentage is up around 50%, uh, uh, an increase from the two previous seasons. And yet, this guy does not have a very high um, hit rate, which a lot of fast guys who hit ground balls tend to have slightly higher hit rates than the norm. He's right around 30%, which is kind of league-wide average. And even though he draws a lot of walks, Nick, he strikes out too much. I mean, that's really the problem here, isn't it? He's never... He's never come really that close to 80% in the contact rate, and last year 70% is is really quite poor for a slap hitter type player like him. Yeah, it really is. I mean, 70% contact rate in two of the past three seasons. So uh, you're right; he does strike out way too much for a uh, for a slap hitter. Staying in St. Louis, Jaime Garcia, as a rookie, had a beautiful ERA around 2.70 or so. Then uh, it kind of crept up last year, but really this could be a buying opportunity. That ERA rising last year. It could indeed, because skills were actually a little bit better last season than they were in his in his uh, stellar rookie year. I mean, if you look at what he here's a guy who was still getting more than fifty percent ground balls. His control last year was was excellent, was better than it was in his in his rookie year, um, which brought his command ratio up to from two point one to three point one. Um, he keeps the ball in the park. Uh, here's a guy who looks and and last year, in fact, he had a low, fairly had a high strand rate, which really gave him that 2.70 ERA. Strand rate sort of normalized last year, but that expected earned run average last season 3.37, a, a good thing to look at. And probably because it looked like he was fading a year ago, he's going to go a little bit uh, less expensively than he might have otherwise in a draft. Yeah, that's what I I thought too when I looked at his chart. His expected ERA has fallen steadily since his 2008 season when he got into 10 games at an expected ERA of around 4.5, and and then he missed 09 in 2010, 378 last year, 337. Everything's headed in the right direction for this guy, and it's a a situation where the results did not match the skills. That's right. That's exactly what happened. And so here's a guy that you may be able to pick up on the cheap, uh, who could have a, uh, uh, another sort of breakout season like he had in 2010. And for a good team, too. So the wins could, could very easily be there. He's had 13 the last couple of years, which for a starting pitcher, especially a young one, 13 wins is not to be sneezed at either. And finally, Nick, talking of pitchers whose skills did not match their results, maybe the poster child for that in 2011 was Zach Granke. A really quite a down year last season, especially in the early going, and yet maybe one of his best years ever as far as skills. Yeah, very definitely. Zach, Zach Greinke had a very uh, uh, troublesome first half in terms of his his uh, ERA production. I mean, he was up uh, by the by the All Star break. His ERA was still up above five. But if you look at the second half last year, for one thing, ERA was down uh, down like it was, and it's not not quite as low as his Cy Young year, but right around two point seven. And expected ERA for the season was two point seven. And in fact, his his skills last season were the best of his career. 
Uh, dominance was up. He was striking out more than uh, more than 10 batters per nine innings. Uh, he did that while maintaining his excellent control. Uh, fly ball rate was down to 31%. So a, a really good job of keeping the ball on the ground. He got a few more line drives last year, uh, but did not, keep, did not let the ball go out of the park. So um, here's a guy who's showing elite-level skills. Last season was masked by a sort of poor start in terms of, uh, I think it was a, a low strand rate that really got him in trouble uh, early on. Uh, but uh, he really is a still a rotation anchor, uh, certainly a guy to uh, to look at early in the dra- in your draft or, or a, a decent uh, anchor for your pitching staff. Boy, I'll say, you look at this guy last year in the, in the first half, as you mentioned, he really had poor results, but not only a 56% strand rate, which is ridiculously low and terribly unlucky, and you have to wonder how much of that is due to maybe some bullpen implosions or, you know, guys, he's, he's walking out of the game leaving two guys on and they both score, which, which comes to his record, even though it's not totally directly his fault. But also his hit rate was 38%, which is very high. And then in the second half, everything normalizes. The strand rate goes up to 80 to kind of compensate for the 56 in the first half. And overall, he has a pretty good year that doesn't really look as good as it was. Right, very definitely. All right, so we'll mark down Jaime Garcia and Zach Grinke as guys to watch in our drafts this year. Nick, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Thanks a lot, Patrick. Harold Nichols is the Director of Skills Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our National League newsman here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's move to the American League. It's BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle. Matt, welcome back to the show. Great to be back, Patrick. Trucks are on the road. Pitchers and catchers report. I know, one of the best days of the year, isn't it? Uh, The big news in the American League this week, Matt, the Oakland Athletics continue to pile up outfielders signing the Cuban prospect Ioannis Cespedes to a four-year contract, $36 million. Matt, first of all, what are they doing with all these outfielders? I I think he's just gathering talent. When you're in rebuilding mode, you gather as much talent as you can. You don't care what else you have, where they play. You just just grab. And this is a talent grab is the only way I can make any sense out of it. Yeah, and uh, they they have Seth Smith that they acquired. They've got Coco Crisp who re-signed. Josh Reddick came over from Boston in the Bailey deal. They got a couple other guys like uh, um, Chris Carter and guys like that. So certainly they have plenty of guys. Is there a possibility that maybe Billy Bean is taking this guy, hoping that maybe he pans out early and has a has a really good first couple of months in the American League, and then trades him for something that he he needs more desperately than he needs yet another center fielder? That has to be the reasoning or understanding he may struggle. Uh, he basically, when you look at prospect analysts, they're putting him in the top 15, top 25 players out there, so he may not even be ready to adjust to the major league. So I think he's just gathering talent. He's going to see what he has. It's a high-risk, high-reward move. If he pans out to be uh, the next coming of, of Mike Stanton or Raul Mondesi, I saw him compared to somewhere, uh, then he's made out with a great contract. If not... He's lost the money, and he has some time to let the guy grow. And uh, they're really shooting for a new stadium out there in San Jose, and he wants to have a good team at that time. A little bit unusual that uh, Suspedes ended up on the far side of North America. Of course, he said he wanted to be as far from Cuba as he could get. And uh, short of going to Seattle, I guess, Oakland's about as far as that is. Yeah, that's about as far as you can get away. And uh, it'll be interesting to see how that playing time shakes out from fantasy perspective. Very difficult. You'd think Coco Crisp is the proven veteran. Uh, we'll get plenty of time there. But it's interesting. He said he's not going to move out of center field for Cespedes. And, and I think you know, he could be a guy that could go, a veteran, come the pennant race. You know what you're getting with Coco Crisp. And uh, the A's don't have a short-term outlook. They're looking long-term. So he's the guy who, you know, could be the odd man out here in July. That's an excellent point. I hadn't thought of that. So if you have Coco Crisp on your roster, maybe this is a time to explore opportunities to get him off your roster if you're in a single-league league where you would lose his stats. And I'm also wondering about how is it that Coco Crisp can tell the club where he's going to play? Well, I don't think he's earned that, and his fielding ratings have gone down the last couple of years. Certainly was an exciting player, but also has a very weak arm, so he's really better suited for left field than center from a defensive perspective. So a little bit surprised that he would come out and say that, but uh, you know, players are confident in their abilities, and they want to stand up and, and fight for what they think they deserve. It's just that I remember playing sports when I was a kid, and usually what they wanted to hear was, I'll do whatever the team needs, coach. And that's what Miguel Cabrera and what Prince Fielder have said in that signing in Detroit. 
even if it turns out to be disastrous, good for Miguel Cabrera for saying, yeah, I, I know I'm going to be bad over there, but if it helps the team, I'll do it. Uh, Matt, in Minnesota, Joe Maurer at one time was one of the best fantasy guys you could have on a roster, played a scarce position, played it real well, had tremendous batting average, used to have some fair power, not so much. 2011, pretty much a lost year. So where does he sit as we go into 2012? I think the biggest thing people used to think of Joe Maurer is a guy that could really carry your team at a scarce position. He hit 365 in 2009, had decent power, 28 homers. This guy was a superstar. But since he's moved to target field and experienced some injuries, this is definitely not the same player. Last year, his expected batting average was below his batting average. And while we can chalk that up to in injuries, his walk rate has fallen the last four years from 14% in 2008 all the way down to 10% in 2011. His contact rate at 87% was the lowest he's had in the last five years. And his eye ratio, 0.84, also the lowest by far in the last five years. He still hits a lot of line drives, but hitting too many ground balls, 55% ground balls in 2011, 62% in the first half, and only 22% of balls in the air. That's a three-year decline. His power index is now 57, so you can't look at Maurer for homers, especially in target field. You have to hope that maybe some of this was injury-related. His plate patience did return in the second half, 11%, that hopefully he can you know, rebuild himself and get back to that 300 average at least out of the catching hole, but at, looking for any kind of power is really a fool's game right now. And it sure does make the 28 home runs in 2009 look not just uh, like a, an outlier. They just look bizarre because even in that year, he was right around 50% ground ball, 30% fly ball. Uh, he had the good PX, but that's because he had home runs. That's how it's measured in large part. And uh, and a very high home run per fly ball percentage. So it's starting to look like seven, eight, nine home runs is his norm, and that 28 was just something that came out of outer space. It just reminds me, and I say this probably every week. It drives people nuts, I imagine. But you can't expect these pl young players to get better every year. They're going to regress back to a norm, a statistical norm sometimes, and, and maybe they'll come back and be better, and maybe they won't. We always assume a young player is going to get better, and I think that's a faulty assumption. We have to assume they're going to stay relatively near their norm and just under, understand they have the potential to be better, not the likelihood that they'll be better. And one other thing about Maurer, he figures to hit in the middle of the lineup, so if he hits... 23, 24% line drives, plugs the, plugs the gap with lots of doubles, and he could end up in a fairly decent RBI guy even without a lot of home runs. Absolutely, and if he plays some first base as he started to last year, and Justin Morneau's been struggling coming off his concussion, if Maurer's willing to DH a little and play some first base, that would give him more at-bats and offer more counting stat opportunities. Let's move over to the pitching staff in Toronto. Matt, they have a good-looking young pitching staff, but Brett Cecil, who figures to be in the rotation at least for now, is a bit of a problematic guy. Well, he's a guy who's been inconsistent. He really, really struggled in the first half. Had a 3.29 average against by right-handed batters that really just crushed his numbers. His walk-to-strikeout ratio has been very consistent at just over two, which is the metric we like to see, two strikeouts to every walk. Uh, his dominance is okay, 6.2. His walk rate is low at 2.8. So he's just right there on the cusp. But he just can't seem to keep the ball on the ground. He had a 43% fly ball rate last year and had an unlucky home run for fly ball rate of 13%. And up at the Rogers Center, the ball just jumps out of there, so you cannot get the ball in the air. I think the Blue Jays are going to be a surprise team, especially now they've gone back to the old retro Blue Jay uniforms. They've got lots of young talent. I think they're going to be sort of the sleeper team like the Rays were a few years ago. They've got an immense amount of talent there that's all coming together at the same time. And if Cecil can keep the ball on the ground, in the second half his expected area was 423, nothing wrong with that. He got right-handed batters average down to 270, which isn't great. But if he can just keep that ball on the ground, keep it over the plate, an ERA of four is very serviceable on that team. Still, uh, unless we see something going on here in spring training and in the early part of the year, he looks pretty risky, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, this is a guy you're going to take a flyer on at the end saying, hey, here's a guy with decent skills. If he does progress, he's been very stable in his skill set. Nothing fantastic, but very stable. If he can take a step up to the next level now that he's feeling more comfortable, got his control down, keeping the ball out of the air a little better. In the first half of last year, 49% fly ball rate. In the second half, 42%. Not good. But understand, with his expected area of 423 in the second half, in that division in particular, uh, that's that can be effective. So in the end game, this is the kind of guy you might take a chance on. Certainly not to build your staff around. 
Well, Matt, a player who has really fallen on hard times in 2011 in particular, Sean Figgins in Seattle. They signed him to a big money four-year deal before 2010 based on the fact that he'd been a, a kind of a 300-hitter, 40-stolen base guy with even a, a little bit of uh, of uh, power and RBI potential, scoring a lot of runs. And then in 2011, first a hip injury, and then everything just fell apart. Is Sean Figgins worth even looking at anymore? I think in the end game, whenever you guy who have a guy who's injured like that, in the end game, you have to consider them as someone who could come back to their previous level or some semblance of their previous self. I don't think he's going to hit 330 again or even 298. But when he, the guy is injured, uh, there were so many batters last year that had inordinately low batting averages, such as his 188. Uh, the difference is his skills are really bad. His walk rate has been cut in half the last three years from 14% in 2009 to 7% in 2011. But Figgins did increase his contact rate to 85%. He just suffered from a very low 22% hit rate. Here's a guy that can come back and hit 240, 250, probably steal you a few bags. He's not the same runner. His speed index went down just below average last year. His uh, He got caught more often. But again, He's suffering from an injury. When healthy, he's a guy that can get you, you know, lots of stolen bases, depending on his playing time. So, as an, again, an end-game speculation for steals, I don't mind Figgins, and he qualifies as a lot of different positions, so he can get playing times in many different ways. So I don't mind him as an end-game speculation. I just wouldn't spend, you know, more than a buck or two on him. Hard to imagine him getting drafted at all in any kind of mixed-league format where you have so many other alternatives, but... Uh, the other worry, if you're in a single-league league, a deeper league where he might be seem like a decent alternative, is another possibility for being traded potentially out of the league because if he starts strong, certainly he doesn't fit into Seattle's long-term plans. So if he has a good year with the mitt early on and steals some bases and hits around 300, he could be trade bait, which means you could lose him. Absolutely. And teams like Detroit need somebody at the top of the line. There are, are competitors out there who would like to have somebody like that very versatile off their bench. We're always on the lookout for guys who aren't closers in bullpens, Matt, but could become closers. And a name that's been popping up a lot lately has been that of Greg Holland, a right-hander in Kansas City. Of course, Joaquin Soria is out there first, but Holland looks like he's the kind of guy who has what it takes to become a closer should the opportunity arise. Absolutely, and even if he doesn't become a closer, he's one of these guys you can get further deep in the draft that can give you strikeouts, give you great whip and great ERA. His ERA last year was 195, and his expected ERA was 175. We don't expect him to duplicate that. He had a very low 26% hit rate. But here's a guy who struck out almost 11 batters per nine innings uh, and didn't walk many either. His command ratio was excellent. His home run for fly ball was a little lucky, but this is a guy was base performance value, which is a summary of all of our metrics, was 134. And anytime you get in triple digits, that's an amazing pitcher. I mean, he only walked less than three guys for nine innings. Uh, this is a guy who's going to be a fantastic pitcher this year, sitting there quietly behind Soria. Soria's name has been bandied about in trade talks. If the Royals disappoint this year, you know, they could look to trade Soria and get a lot for him at the trade deadline if there's some injuries in the closure situation for competitive teams because they know they have Holland to step right in there. And if they are any kind of decent team this year, he could vulture a few wins while you're waiting. And today's setup guys seem to get more save opportunities. Uh, managers are more aggressive using their closers. They use them two or three days in a row. They need a day off. It seems like there are more save opportunities for those vulture guys if they have a high-quality one as well to give the closer a night off. Over in Detroit, um, manager Jim Leland said that Brennan Bosch, the outfielder, is going to hit in front of Prince Fielder and Miguel Cabrera, which is not a bad place to hit. It could help his runs, but is Brennan Bosch the kind of guy that you really want to be targeting? Well, I think he could be a sleeper guy. You're not going to have to pay that much for him. He tends to slide and draft, only hitting 16 homers last year. And he's got decent plate patience. He had an 8% walk rate, 81% contact rate, puts the bat in the ball. I wouldn't get him for batting average. He had a little lucky hit rate last year of 32%. His expected batting average is a little bit lower than his actual batting average. But this guy's got pop on his bat, and he's going to see a lot of pitches to hit. His power index has always been 12% or more above league average. Uh, his home run for fly ball rate is going up in his career. Still a young guy. He's going to be feeling comfortable here with his second full season. So Bosch, certainly, the key for him is can he maintain his production in the second half? He always seems to tire out in the second half. And I think as he's a year older and been through this a couple of times, uh, this is the time for Bosch to shine. He's going to get a great opportunity with lots of fastballs to hit in front of Fielder and Cabrera. Yeah, 163 batting average in the second half last year. A lot of people are going to be looking at that and thinking, 
Uh, I don't know if I want to take a chance on that, but he's 26 years old, which is coming into his uh, productive peak. Who knows? Uh, another one of those guys to look at in the end game. Uh, Matt, a little later on in this program, you're going to be having your Market Pulse commentary. Uh, what's that going to be about? Well, last year we talked about the draft uh, targets we have in simulation leagues, and we only did mostly the pitchers in the very top of the draft. This week we're going to look at some of the position players and look maybe a little deeper in the first and second, maybe even to the third rounds of some targets you could get cheap in this year's simulation draft pool. All right, Matt, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you in a week's time, and spring training will be well started. Can't wait, Patrick. Matt Beagle is a columnist at BaseballHQ.com and our American League commentator here at Baseball HQ Radio. Part two of our conversation Hi, with minor league expert Rob Gordon from BaseballHQ.com comes up next. Stay I'm also us. the co-author, along with Jeremy Deloney, of the 2012 Minor League Baseball Analyst, which is available through Baseball HQ and will be delivered in late January and plenty of time for your 2012 draft prep. The book contains statistical and scouting information on over 1,000 of the best prospects in baseball, along with numerous articles and valuable lists. The book uses all of the invaluable Baseball HQ statistical tools to help you figure out which prospects are likely to have the biggest impact and when they will reach the majors. Order the Minor League Baseball Analyst 2012 now at BaseballHQ.com for $19.95 plus shipping and handling. As a special bonus, if you order the analyst directly from BaseballHQ.com, you'll get an online update of all 30 organizational lists in March 2012 and at the same time an online update of the top 50 fantasy prospects. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt, joined for the second week in a row by BaseballHQ.com's minor league analyst, Rob Gordon. Rob, welcome back for the second week. This has been a great uh, session so far. Hey, Patrick. Thanks for having me back on the show again. And, of course, uh, within the last couple of weeks, you and Jeremy Deloney, your partner at BaseballHQ.com, have released not only your top 100 prospects list, but your two columns describing the differences that you had in evaluating certain players. And this week, I'd like to follow up, Rob, with uh, talking about specific players rather than the general rules of evaluating talent. And we're going to start off with a question from one of our BaseballHQ.com forums users. Nuxi wants to know, do you prefer a prospect who has breezed through the minors at every level, or do you like a guy who's had to overcome failure and make adjustments? Uh, for me, I'll take the guy who had to make adjustments any day. Um, I mean, I'm thoroughly convinced that, that baseball is all about adjustments at, at, at almost every level. And so you do occasionally see guys that just breeze through, and from the time that they were in high school through whether they played college ball or not, uh, you know, they just kind of cruise through, and they get to the majors, and all of a sudden, wow, it's like, uh, you know, they fail for the first time in the major leagues. And, and so how do, they, how do they make an adjustment? Um, you know, Anthony Rizzo is a, a guy like that. He came, really came up and really struggled uh, last year. And Alex Gordon's a perfect example of that. He hit 300 every year in college. And I think he hit his first year in the minors, his only year in the minors, he hit 325 with 39 doubles and 29 home runs. And then after that, you know, I think 240, 260, 232, 215, and then, you know, he finally figured things out last year, but it took him four years to do it. So the learning curve is just so much steeper at the major league level than it is in the minor leagues. I'd much rather see a guy come out and, you know, do, you know, even thinking about the Arizona Fall League, when, um, when you see players that, like, you know, kind of struggle a little bit to, to get started, there. like Bryce Harper, I think, was one for 18 in his first, his first 18 at-bats in the Arizona Fall League, and then he started to make the adjustments. And then he figured some things out. And so being able to, even from, from game to game, being able to, to make adjustments. I think of Justin Verlander last year. I think one of the keys to his breakout last year was that he was willing to make adjustments, even on a game-by-game basis. And if his fastball, you know, he'd start off kind of instead of trying to blow everybody away, just throw strikes and, and see what he had that day and then tinker with it as he went throughout the game. So I'd rather see a guy who understands that baseball is about making adjustments and can figure out what those adjustments are, then comes through and just has no difficulties and then, and then reaches the majors. A guy who seems to have done that, uh, getting ahead of ourselves a bit here, but at Arizona Folly, Will Myers looked really good, and he's a guy who, who kind of seemed to be making adjustments as he made his way up the ladder. Yeah, he definitely did. You know, and he, had, he had a real difficult year this year. Um, you know, he had injury, and then, uh, and then his knee got infected. And so he really missed, you know, probably about a month of action and then really didn't look the same when he came back and hit about 250. Um, you know, and there's some people that were questioning whether is this, guy, is this guy really everything that he was cracked up to be. 
But then in the fall league, boy, he looked great down there, didn't he? Yeah, he did, and and we had the chance also to watch Bryce Harper, and Mike Trout was in the league, and Mike Trout looked real tired. Yeah, he looked exhausted. I think, you know, I did worry about a, a, a little bit. I mean, he, he looked so overmatched at that point. Um, you know, like, he, he really, even when guys were just throwing straight fastballs, he, he was late on them. Um, he looked sluggish. Um, but, you know, I mean, he, he played a lot of baseball because they, they were really thinking that he was going to play on the team, that you know, the, the previous year. So he was he, he played a lot of instructional ball, and then he, and then he just he, – he, I don't think he really got much of a break. And then to go down to the fall league after – it wasn't like he got hurt or anything. He played the full season and, and, and the whole thing and then came right from there. Some of the guys got August off at least because they were, they were dying. The minor leagues are done in August, and, and Trout was still up playing in the major leagues. So and then to come right down there and do that, I just think he looked gassed. I agree. And, uh, Rob, that, that gets us kind of started on talking about specific players from your top 100 list. Uh, give me a hitter or three who rose the most on this year's list compared to last year's list. Uh, well, the first guy that jumps to my mind is, is Jerkson Profar of the, of the Rangers. He was, you know, he, he just had a fantastic season. Um, you know, and, and I think I had him, I don't even think I even had him in the top 100 last year, and, and uh, at least if I did, it was in the, in the bottom half of that. Um, but just, you know, for a young player, again, talking about he, he showed good power at early power as an 18-year-old playing full-season ball. Um, he showed good power. He showed really good plate discipline, so his strikeout-to-walk ratio was very good for a young player. Um, you know, and plus he's just real athletic. He, he, he can field the position really well, and so there's no questions about whether he's actually going to be able to stick at shortstop, which is key. So you're talking about a guy who's got who's got good power potential, you know, not great speed, but decent speed, and then real solid plate discipline. Who's going to hit for average at shortstop? That's a guy who really jumped up uh, on our list this year, um, and I think we had him on the overall list. I think we had him at, at number six. So he really moved up quite a bit. Uh, another guy who I personally like, who we saw in the fall league, is Nolan Arenado of the of the Rockies. Um, he really jumped up a lot. Again, some of the same you know things happened with him. He he, he showed an ability to, to hit for average. He showed pretty good plate discipline, real good power for a young player, and his defense was much better this year than it had been in the past. And I think he worked really hard during the off season, uh, and it showed last year. Which pitchers made good jumps? Uh, you know, guys that that I really like. Uh, Drew Pomerantz is uh, another guy from the Rockies, a left-handed pitcher, uh, came over from the Indians. Uh, that's just a nice acquisition for them. Um, he really he really jumped up quite a bit on the list. I think we had him in the in the bottom half of the list last year, uh, and his number twenty overall this year. Um, he he just has phenomenal potential, and he's, I think he's going to probably get a chance to to win a starting rotation spot for the Rockies this spring, along with Alex White, who's also another interesting uh, prospect uh, out of North Carolina. Uh, and then another pitcher, Carlos Martinez. Um, you know, the reason I didn't have him on my top one hundred list last year was that I hadn't seen him play. Uh, he's an international player, and so I hadn't really get a chance to see him play, in, you know, in the U.S. until until last year. And boy, he looks fantastic! And you know, the the Cardinals just love this guy. And you know, there are some people in the organization I think at least say he's almost as good as, as Shelby Miller, if not better. Um, I'm not quite convinced of that, but uh, but again, that guy really had a good year. Tailed off a little bit in the second half once he got bumped to Double A, but um, real good potential there. And what about uh, some hitters who fell the most from 2011 to 2012? Well, yeah, that's always difficult. I mean, I was, you know, I hate to lose hope or give up faith on players that I, at one point in time was pretty optimistic about, but it does happen. Uh, a couple guys that uh, that jump to mind immediately are, are a couple catchers. Um, Tony Sanchez from from Pittsburgh, you know, um, pretty decent defensive catcher. Um, you know, had a good professional, like full season debut last year, where he, you know he hit over 300 and. And uh, not not a ton of power, and I don't think everyone anyone ever thought that, that was going to be part of his game. But you know, it looked it looked like after after last year that you're you're looking at a 300 hitting catcher with you know a little bit of power and pretty good defense. And he just he just stank last year. I mean, he was just bad. Um, couldn't hit. You know, his plate discipline got worse. Um, almost no power. Um, you know, and, and and you know, people started to to question whether it was impacting his defense even. So he just had a totally forgettable season. And, you know, if he can't hit for average, you know, with a lack of power, there really isn't a whole lot to like there. Um, another guy who I've kind of soured on is, is a catcher for the, for the Nationals, Derek Norris. Um, saw him a couple years ago in the Fall League and was really impressed with what I saw down there. I mean, he had a real live bat, pretty decent power, and really good plate discipline. He hadn't really ever had that breakout season where he hit, you know, 300 with 20 home runs, that kind of thing. 
but you almost got the felt like you know he, he actually very consistently walks as much as he as he strikes out and, and so you know 70 80 walks a year that's the kind of thing I'd like to see from a young player but he's one of those guys we talked about last week who who's almost too patient and so he needs to get more aggressive at the plate and and you, you want to be able to sort of keep that walk ratio good but you can't be so passive that you know you miss pitches that you can drive and I think maybe that's his problem but um and he's not quite as good defensively. So, again, if he doesn't hit, he, he loses all of his value there. Before we go on to what pitchers fell, Rob, on your list, uh, Travis Darno, you were talking about catchers. He had a really good year for Toronto in that organization. Yeah, I really like him a lot. He, he jumped up quite a bit on, uh, on the list. Um, I think he's going to be very good. Uh, real good defensive catcher, hits for average, pretty good play discipline, and just real nice power for, for a young guy. Um, I don't know how quickly he's going to be up, but boy, he, he had a really good year last year, and I'm I'm excited. Toronto's got a really good organization. Their 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 organization's really deep, um, and he's he's one of the best catching prospects out there right now. And we'll talk about guys who are blocked later, but he's got a fairly established young catcher in Toronto in front of him, JP and Sebia. How do you see that playing out? Well, you know, I mean, you can always move one of them to first base or, or DH, or you know, you, you can trade. I mean, like, you know, what team doesn't isn't going to want to? A pretty good young catcher. Um, I think Darno is, is 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 way better though. So I figure that's gonna that's gonna work out when he's ready. There there he's not gonna be blocked by anybody. I don't think. I think he's that good. And definitely a better defensive catcher, which is a, a real important part for any ball organization. Which uh, which pitchers fell on your list this year based on 2011? Well, a couple guys I was pretty optimistic about. One was uh, a, another Rockies guy, Tyler Matzik. Um, he just had I don't know what happened there. He just had a disastrous season. He had a pretty nice breakout in in, uh, in 2010, and then last year just just couldn't couldn't find the strike zone. And so you know he, he struggled a bit with his control the year before, but he he had, he, had, he basically was able to hold that together, and he had a good a good dominance ratio. Um, was a little wild at times, but you know th- that happens often, especially with lefty. Um, and I was pretty optimistic that he could that he could figure out those control issues. Well, the wheels totally came off last year. He started off in the California League, and I think he had like a nine ERA after the first month. Um, he asked the Rockies for a leave of, leave of absence and was actually went back and worked with his, his prep uh, pitching coach to try to figure out what he was doing. He was a little bit better when he came back, um, but he, he still he walked as many as he, as he struck out last year. I think he walked 97 and struck out 101. Uh, you, just can't, you just can't get away with that. And so... I'm not ready to totally write him off. I, I think sometimes those things do happen, especially with a young player. You know, they lose their confidence. But um, you know, he he really he fell out of top hundred. I wouldn't even consider him in the top hundred at this point. I think I had him in, in, in the front half of the top one hundred last year. Uh, and another pitcher for for the um, for the Padres, Simon Castro, I was pretty high on, um, and he just again it's control issues. Uh, and that's often the case with these young guys is that they just they just lose some sort of consistency with their mechanics and can't fight the strike zone and everything then suddenly spins out of control. Rob, looking at the list, uh, I see at a glance that Kansas City and Seattle have a lot of names on it. Which organizations have the deepest pools of talent? Well, you know, I, read, I rated the Padres as the top organization. Um, they, they just, you know, especially with some of the trades that they made, um, they're, they're, they don't have any superstars or future Hall of Famers on, on their list. Um, Yonder Alonso, he's probably the best out, out of the group, but... Um, you know, they have Robbie Erlin and, and Jed Garrico and um, James Darnell and Yosemani Grandal, uh, Casey Kelly, you know, they, Reimer and Liriano. They just have, I mean, just a, a bevy of pitchers and hitters. Uh, you know, when I, was, when I was doing their top 15 list, um, you know, looking at who is number, most organizations, <laughs> once you reach 10, you're kind of like, oh, none of these guys are really that great. <laughs> with, uh, with the Padres, once I got to 15, I was, I was thinking, wow, I can't believe I'm going to leave that guy off the list because, in most other organizations, that guy would be a top ten prospect. So San Diego for me is just a, it's just the deepest organization out there. Again, the, the downside with San Diego is they don't really have any 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 standout you know future Hall of Fame kind of players. Um, Toronto's a really good organization. They they've done a, a great job in stockpiling that organization. I saw a guy a couple times. Jake Marishnik is is probably their top prospect. Although Darren Oates is very good too. And then they've got Anthony Ghost, Deck McGuire, Daniel Norris. They got a lot of good pitchers. Again, good pitchers. Good position players, uh, a catcher in the mix. Um, you got to love that, you know. And so they've they've got a nice deep pool of players there. Again, I don't know if they have any future Hall of Fame kind of players, like a Bryce Harper kind of player, but just real solid, solid ball players. And and you know, for an organization like Toronto, that's exciting because 
then you can then you can kind of bring those players up. Maybe do something like Tampa did a couple of years ago, and uh, you know really make some noise there. Kansas City is still a good organization, um, even though they've they've moved some of their their high end prospects up already. Uh, they still have Will Myers that we talked about. Bubba Starling is was probably the best prep uh, outfielder available this year. Uh, Mike Montgomery struggled a little bit last year, but a real good left-handed pitcher that we saw in the fall league two years ago. Uh, so they have some real nice high-end prospects. And then obviously the Washington Nationals, um, good system. And then they have you know two of the best young players in, in Bryce Harper and Anthony Rendon, who was the sixth overall pick, and I think was actually was arguably the best player in the draft last year. Um, so those to me seem to be the organizations that really stand out. Obviously Tampa is still a good organization, but once they move Matt Moore out of that group, which I'm assuming will happen this spring, that their their overall depth really comes down a bit. Which ones, conversely, who who's got the thinnest uh, pool of talent at the minor league level? Well, you know Houston. Uh, you know Milwaukee's 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 real thin. Baltimore's pretty thin, but uh, Milwaukee's thin because they they've made trades, and so you kind of you can't fault them quite as much for that. I mean, they you know they they went out last year and, and got a, you know Zach Reinke and Sean Markham and some other players. Um, you know, and so they, they, they burn some of their prospects in, in, in the trades, and so, um, you know, they have to stockpile again. But And their system wasn't terribly deep to begin with, and so that really thinned the organization out. But Houston, for me, is just year in and year out, I have, have no clue what they're doing. You look at their drafts, and, you know, they're, they're, they're drafting value picks in the, in the first round and, um, you know, guys that they're hoping are going to pan out and, uh, you know, high school guys that, that maybe they don't have to pay quite as much money for. And it, to me, that just, it, that just never works. I mean, you might as well, you know, not even not even be doing it if you're not really serious about spending money in the draft. I mean, teams have proven it seems to me, anyways, that if you spend money in the draft, you get what you pay for. And and when you're consistently underspending other teams, you're not going to have you're not going to have any any depth there. So they've gotten a little bit better. They made a couple trades last year, but I think in their top their top ten, I think seven of the top ten guys came in trades. And so I can't really say that they did a good job of like drafting those guys. They basically just wholesale, you know, got rid of all their good players at the major league level. So the organization's gotten a little bit better, but it's still, given, given that, they don't really have any players that they brought in themselves and, and stockpiled the organization. The Cubs, the Cubs have also not been real great. This is Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt talking prospects with Rob Gordon, who has his on annual Top 100 Prospects list written with Jeremy Deloney online now at BaseballHQ.com. And Rob, we're talking about organizations, and of course drafting good players is just a part of the process. There's also developing the talent and bringing it up to the major leagues, and Nuxie, one of our HQ Forum's subscribers, wants to know if you bought a baseball organization, whose scouting department would you hire? For me, it's two questions. One is, which organization does a good job of identifying minor league and international talent. And I think, you know, some of the organizations that, that we mentioned uh, do a pretty good job of that. Certainly, you know, Tampa has been pretty creative. Uh, Atlanta has been, been pretty good. But there's also the player development aspect of it. And so some teams that maybe don't spend as much money um, or maybe don't do as quite as good a job, you know, drafting the high-end players do a pretty good job of actually developing the players. Conversely, there might be teams like Baltimore's Actually, I don't. I don't mind the players they've drafted. They just have had a hard time developing some of the, the particularly the young pitching that they have. Um, I, I think as prospects, you know, those guys were like Brian Mattis was. I, there was nothing wrong with him as a prospect. He just hasn't gotten any better. Um, and so, for me, I, I like somebody like St. Louis. Um, they they I think get underrated. Uh, they do a really good job of. of uh, identifying talent, not overpaying for the talent, but then developing that talent once they get it. And so, you know, as we saw in the World Series, a lot of those guys that contributed to that were homegrown players, um, not necessarily first-round bonus baby draft picks, but, but guys that they developed within their organization. And I think Atlanta also, you know, has obviously historically done a good job of assessing and developing talent. Are there differences in organizations in developing hitters versus developing pitchers, by which I mean are certain organizations known for bringing hitters along really well and other organizations for bringing pitchers along really well but maybe not the opposite? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think, uh, again, the Cardinals are probably the best best example of, uh, of churning out productive position players. I don't think all-stars, but, you know, Year after year, they, they turn out you know quality quality young players that can fill in and, and play third base or the outfield or second base you know and, and really not high flying prospects but then just they really just do a good job of developing hitters. I think most organizations really struggle with that frankly um, 
you know, if you look at if you look at some of the organizations that have been good at developing talent, like Tampa, for example, it's a lot of it's pitching. Um, same with Atlanta, a lot of it's pitching. Um, you know, so so Atlanta had had Jason Hayward and uh, and Freddie Freeman, but you know they haven't really they haven't really developed quite as effectively as some of the pitchers that they've that they've brought up. So I think teams really struggle in in developing good position players. Um, I think it just takes longer for those guys to 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 develop and. The pitchers are easier to, to see those those guys just streak some like Matt Moore just streaked through the minors, and then comes up to the majors and, and has success. Um, I think I think clubs have a harder time doing that with position players. Uh, Rob, we had some questions from the BaseballHQ.com Facebook page and the BaseballHQ subscriber forums about specific players, and we'll close with a few of those uh, from our Facebook page. Michael Ganella wants to know if Miguel Sano of the Twins will be in the big leagues this year. He used to be called Miguel Jean, was he not? Yes, yeah, no, I, I, I'd be shocked. I mean, I think he's he's a fantastic young player, um, but he he's only 18, and he he just played rookie ball last year, so he hasn't even made his, his full season debut yet. Um, he had really good success. He had very nice power for you know for uh, for a young player like that. So I'm really excited about him, but uh, I, I think we have him for a, a, an ETA of about 2014. So I think we've got to wait a couple more years on him. Also from Facebook, Tim Clark wants to know whether Brett Laurie or Mike Moustakis will have a bigger fantasy impact in 2012 at the hot corner. Well, I, de- I definitely think Brett Lowry. I mean, that's, that's my pick. I've liked that guy, you know, from the time he got drafted. Uh, you know, again, talk about the trades that the, the Brewers made. That really, that really is not looking like a great trade for them right now. Uh, I think we have Lowry projected to earn $24 and Moustakis projected to earn $12, and those seem right, right, right about on to me. Um, Moustakis has, I think he's, he's going to be a little bit slower to develop. He's, he's a little stiffer in his approach. He's got fantastic power, but you know, he, he took a couple of years to kind of sort things out in the minors. And I would, I would anticipate probably something along those same lines in the majors, um, where there's just a, a little bit slower of a learning curve there. Uh, you know, long-term I could see him hitting 40 home runs, but Lowry's just the kind of guy he could hit 300, uh, you know, with a good on-base percentage and, and hit 25 home runs too. So I, I would definitely take him. Yeah, he could steal some bases too. Brett Laurie can run a little bit. Uh, from the Baseball HQ forums, Rob Mudcat wants to know what you think about a second baseman in the Texas organization by the name of Rugned Oder, which is a terrific name. <laughs> Great name. But is he a good prospect? Yeah, he's a very good prospect. Uh, you know, he's still pretty raw at this point, but uh, but he's a real good prospect. Uh, can hit and, uh, you know, is, is real athletic. Um, has good power potential. So um, yeah, I definitely think he, he's he's somebody that uh, you should keep an eye on, especially if you're you know some some guys playing real deep keeper leagues, and he's the kind of guy that you'd want to roster in, in you know like any sort of dynasty league. Um, you know, thinking he's still a ways away at this point, but uh, yeah, I would definitely definitely target somebody like that. Also from the HQ subscriber forums, Harry the K wants some insight from you, Rob, as to a couple of fantasy specific prospects you might think are going to be possible contributors but they're outside most of the top 100 lists he's thinking of a guy like danny espinoza who came up in the forums but not on your list a couple of years ago and turned out to be a pretty useful fantasy player is there anybody like that comes to mind yeah and a lot you know it's interesting a lot of those guys really depend on on playing time and you know we that's something that's so difficult to to predict you know with espinoza you know his defense wasn't all that great and it wasn't clear what position he was going to play but he had good, you know, he had real good power and good speed. I mean, that's a nice combination, whether it's a second base or shortstop. Um, you know, a guy that I that I like is uh, is James Darnell from from the Padres. He's just a professional hitter. He's hit at every level he's played at. I think he had 42 doubles and 15 home runs last year. Uh, you know, with a close to 300 average. Um, not very good defensively. Um, you know, and he doesn't really have a place, a logical place to play. He played third base for a while, um, not very well. Uh, you know, and then and then kind of got replaced there in the organization in terms of their depth charts by Judge Guerrero, and so he's he's going to play outfield, but he's not very good there. But if somehow he managed to secure a starting spot because either the Padres struggled or they liked his bat enough, uh, I think he could really surprise. And he only had a ton of home runs in that park, but again, if you're looking for somebody who's going to contribute in terms of RBIs and on base percentage, he's a he's a good pick. Um, Tyler Pasternicki, who who we mentioned before. Um, you know, if he gets full-time at-bats in Atlanta, he's got, he's got better speed than I think people realize. Um, you know, so if you could get a shortstop to hit 300 with 25, 30 stolen bases, there's some real value there. So I definitely – I think he's probably going to be on a lot of sleeper lists this spring, but he's definitely a guy that I would keep an eye on. Uh, a couple guys who have struggled but I'm still optimistic somewhat about are Josh Vitters, um, 
from the Cubs. He, you know, the Cubs really don't have a solution. I think Ian Stewart's the talk about underachievers. Ian Stewart's kind of going to be their starting third baseman this year, and I just can't see that working out any better there than it did in Colorado. So Vitters, you know, if he if he could ever develop, I think he walked 22 times last year, which is his career high um, in the minors. If he could ever develop any sense of plate discipline um, and patience at the plate, I still think he's got a nice swing and some pretty decent power. So I think that's maybe a little bit more of a long-term kind of kind of bet there, but it's still potential. Um, and then Andy Oliver from from Detroit, uh, left-handed pitcher who just looked horrible last year, both you know after when he got called up and then after he got sent back down, he just, he lost, you know, lost his confidence and couldn't find the strike zone. But before that was a, was a real good, you know, pitcher and real good prospect coming up. Um, you know, he, he, the Tigers really don't have anything. They don't have a lot of left-handed uh, pitching in, in their major league level, either in the bullpen or in the starting rotation. So no, no guarantees there, but I could, if you're willing to take a flyer on somebody like that, there's some potential there. It's interesting that you mentioned a guy like uh, uh, Pastor Nicky in Atlanta. One of the big advantages he seems to have going into spring training this year is they don't have a shortstop. If he was in an organization, say, uh, I don't know, the Miami Marlins, where you know, now you've got Reyes and Hanley Ramirez in front of you, or even uh, the Yankees with Jeter apparently staying there until he's 50 years old or whatever, it makes a huge difference in assessing for fantasy purposes. You want a guy who's got a fairly clear path to the majors, whether the guy in front of him is old, or the guy in front of him is going to be a free agent and probably going to price himself out. Issues like that. That's really important in trying to assess how much playing time a guy's going to. Work yeah, it really into. is, and it's it's so hard to do because you don't really know what teams are going to you know what teams are going to do, you know. And that's why that's why you know, we get a lot of questions on the forum and, and, and other and other venues about about closers. You know, like you know, what, should I draft this minor league guy who's going to be the future closer? Well. I mean, if you knew he was going to be the closer, absolutely. But if you if you don't know that, which often is the case, um, you know, Craig Kimbrell was a perfect example last year. I mean, he ended up being a huge bargain, I'm sure. But who knew whether he was going to actually have the closer role or not? You know, when when most teams drafted, it was a, it was a big gamble. And so, trying to find guys like that and, and and figure out what you know how much playing time they're going to get is pretty tricky. It is, but at least we know that, for instance, if you're a first baseman in the Boston organization, you've got Adrian Gonzalez sitting there with a 100-year contract for $5 billion or whatever it is. Chances are you're not going to be playing first base in Boston anytime soon. And ditto, I mean, any first base prospect, Mark Trumbo, in Los Angeles, all of a sudden he's got Albert Pujols sitting on first base, and there's that's a real blow to his value. So you got to, when you're making your farm draft picks, you've got to look ahead and say, Gosh, there's a 10-year contract sitting in front of that guy. Any first baseman in Detroit, same deal, right? Yeah, although, you know, you, 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 yes, absolutely. But, but you also have to, I mean, there's also trades that happen, too. And so, you know, Yonder Alonso looked like he was in that same position for Cincinnati until he got traded. Now, now he looks really good. You know, obviously the park in San Diego isn't, isn't to, his, to his benefit. But, you know, uh, typically teams figure out a way to, to sort those, uh, those log jams uh, up. And so it might not be on the team that you anticipated him playing on, but eventually those guys are going to get a chance if they're good enough. Yeah, it seems to me that, that that has declined over time as teams are more and more cognizant of the value of a really good young prospect because of the six-year salary constraint that's imposed on him by the CBA. So, you know, it. I, I know that... Teams that are going for it are, are sometimes more willing, like Milwaukee, as you said, traded away a lot of good guys to make a run, and, and that happens from time to time. But a lot of teams are playing those cards pretty close to their vest uh, these days. Yeah, that's true. All right, Rob, I really appreciate you taking this time for two weeks in a row, and uh, who's your minor league minute going to be about uh, in this week's edition of Baseball HQ Radio? Yeah, this week we're going to cover Billy Hamilton, uh, shortstop for the Cincinnati Reds, just to Probably the fastest guy I've ever seen in the minor leagues. He stole 103 bases last year, and uh, really exciting, really raw player, but really exciting player. Can he field the position at all? You, you mentioned something about that. No, he's a little shaky there, so <laughs> we'll have to see. I think he made you know 39 errors or something like that last year, so he's got a little bit of work to do. Maybe he ends up as a center fielder. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. If he if that ended up being the situation, I don't think that'd be at all bad. I mean, you wouldn't have to worry about his defense. You just put him out there and. You know, he's got a little bit more reaction time in center field, and if he steals you 70, 80 bases, I mean, you know, you could live with a subpar defensive outfielder more than you could with a shortstop. Absolutely. Rob Gordon, thanks very much for doing this. We'll catch up with you again during the season. Great. Thanks for having me on the show again. 
Rob Gordon is a minor league analyst at BaseballHQ.com, and his commentary, Minor League Minute, will be up just after the break. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. There's a And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular weekly commentaries. We have Matt Beagle on deck with the Market Pulse. BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler is in the hole with Master Notes. And leading off, it's our Minor League Minute. BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon doing double duty telling us about Cincinnati shortstop prospect Billy Hamilton. The Cincinnati Reds' Billy Hamilton generates about as much disagreement among scouts and minor league analysts as any prospect in baseball. No one questions Hamilton's blazing speed. He's been clocked at going from home to first in a blistering 3.7 seconds from the left-hand side. In 2011, the switch-inning Hamilton stole 103 bases in just 135 games and has the potential to be the first major leaguer to steal 100 bases since Ricky Henderson swiped 108 back in 1983. While no one doubts Hamilton's prowess on the base pass, there are plenty of skeptics who question whether or not he will hit enough or get on base enough to be a major league regular. At 6'1", 160 pounds, the 21-year-old Hamilton is wiry and lean, and his slash-and-dash approach at the plate leaves him with well below average power. In 2011, Hamilton hit just three home runs and had 30 extra base hits and 550 at-bats. Hamilton also struck out 133 times, but did show an improved walk rate and picked up 52 free passes while terrorizing catchers in the Midwest League. Defensively, Hamilton is very much a work in progress. He has plus range due to his speed, but his arm is only average, and he made 39 errors last year and will need to improve quickly to stick at shortstop. Despite these limitations, Hamilton is more than just another speedster. He hit 278 last year and 318 the year before. Even if he does end up moving to second base or center field, his raw speed and ability to get on base give him plenty of long-term potential. And, as any good fantasy owner knows, a player with the ability to lead the league in stolen bases is worth putting on your roster. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Baseball HQ Minor League Analyst Rob Gordon. Another way BaseballHQ.com subscribers get the winner's edge is with comprehensive coverage of the minor leagues. Rob Gordon has regular organizational reports and prospect updates. Jeremy Deloney reports every day on minor leaguers called up to the big leagues. If you need to know your prospects to stay competitive in your league, well, BaseballHQ.com has you covered. Now the market pulse with BaseballHQ.com columnist Matt Beagle talking this week about part two of his analysis of the simulation draft pool looking this week at position players. In this year's simulation draft pool, looking at positional players, we see a real excess of first baseman and young catching. If you need help in these areas, especially building a team with a young catcher, there's lots of depth in this draft, but there's very little at shortstop and in the outfield. Let's start at shortstop, where D. Gordon really represents the only long-term option that has any value for the current year. Zach Cozart of the Reds will probably start this year and can be had a few rounds later, but outside of that, there's very little at shortstops here. If you need one, you're going to have to get one early or take a chance on a rebounding veteran. Similarly, in the outfield, you have Desmond Jennings, and after that, you're looking at taking a chance on a John Mayberry, an Alex Presley, Eric Thames. Very little and reliable long-term outfield help in this draft. On the other side of the coin, lots of young catchers are out there. Jesus Montero, Devin Mezzarocco, Salvador Perez, and Willan Rosario. That's four excellent, solid, long-term catchers. Montero usually goes in the top ten, while the rest will often last until pick 20 or later. But once you get to pick 20 to 25, they tend to go off the board right together. Montero, you have to be careful because his defense will hurt you in simulation, assuming he does get to catch games with the Mariners. Similarly, at third base, Brett Laurie goes often in the top five. I think he has one of the biggest chances to disappoint in 2012. He may be good in the long term, but when you look at his minor league numbers, they're not so outstanding to be picked right next to Eric Hosmer and Michael Pineda. Mike Moustakas had a great minor league career, but really struggled at his major league level, may provide a better value in the top ten. And if you need to wait till late, look at Lonnie Chisenhall of the Indians, 
probably in the pick 35 area uh, in your simulation draft, depending on the pool. Second base is a lot of exciting guys in the first round, and Dustin Ackley, Jamal Weeks, and Jason Kipnis. Remember, though, Ackley and Kipnis just switched to the position this year, 2011 year, uh, so they're going to be a fielding weakness for you as they adjust to the major leagues. They've not been playing second base for very long, so Appa, Diamond, Mine, Stratomatic may hit their fielding ratings initially until they get used to playing that position. They also have a chance of being moved out of that position later in their career if they cannot adapt and handle the glove at this important fielding position. Jamal Weeks really helps you a lot this year because he has great speed and had an excellent year, but long-term is probably not as good as Ackley or Kipnis because he doesn't have the power and he doesn't have the outstanding glove himself. For Market Pulse, for Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Matt Beagle. Matt Beagle's columns on a variety of fantasy baseball topics appear regularly at BaseballHQ.com. Now, Master Notes with BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler talking this week about the myth of the rotation ace. In recent forum threads, I've been seeing the return of an old obsession. This is something we successfully discounted and dismissed over ten years ago, but I suppose with the reemergence of the pitcher, it has reared its ugly head again. When major league teams assemble their pitching staffs, the rotation is set up in a hierarchy. They are always looking for an ace, an anchor for their staff, a go-to guy. In fantasy, everyone seems to think their team can't compete without one, too. We often talk about a variation to the Lima plan called the Santana plan. This is similar to Lima, but instead of spending $30 on saves, you spend it on an anchor starting pitcher. Can this work? Certainly, especially if you hit on the right pitcher. But putting your season on the shoulders of one pitcher is a risk. Having an ace is actually a bad thing, particularly if you have to pay a lot to get him, or use up an early pick, as you most likely will. In a standard 5x5 league, it is imperative that you stock up on players who help your counting categories. Given that hitters contribute to four categories and pitchers only three, you immediately have to focus your early picks and big bucks on hitters. The average categories don't need big investments to do well there. Counting categories must be accumulated. Average categories can be managed. With so many pitchers putting up elite numbers these days, there is a sense that you need to roster at least one ace just to keep up with everyone else. It's not true. Value is relative. Todd Zola from Masters Ball wrote, quote, even though the stat line of the 20th best pitcher may be more impressive than in previous seasons, pitching team totals are better across the board, too. The 20th best pitcher today helps your team the same amount as the 20th best pitcher did five years ago. End quote. Also remember that what you are really chasing with these deep picks is not ERA and WHIP, because that can come from a 10th round Max Scherzer just as easily as from a 4th round Giovanni Gallardo. The difference between those two pitchers will hardly budge your team's bottom line in ERA and WHIP. Again, those categories can be managed. So that leaves the counting stats, wins and strikeouts. Wins are tough to predict. Their error bar is incredibly wide. So it's really just about strikeouts. Spending big auction dollars or high draft picks on an ace potentially buys you one category, strikeouts. Knowing that in advance will help you better target the arms that will fill out the bottom of your staff. Suddenly, dominant relievers like David Robertson and Sergio Romo start looking significantly better than finesse starters like Rick Porcello and Joe Saunders. You can do perfectly well without an ace. A group of mid-level pitchers will provide adequate productivity so long as you focus on their skills, walk rate, strikeout rate, ground ball rate, as opposed to their stats, ERA and one-loss record. You don't need Justin Verlander or Roy Halladay to anchor your staff. A roster populated with arms like Matt Garza, Matt Latos, even Gavin Floyd will keep you in contention at a fraction of the cost. Meanwhile, you'll be cleaning up on offense. This message has been brought to you by the Lima Plan. 14 years and still going strong. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ron Chandler. Ron Chandler writes a weekly column every Friday on BaseballHQ.com. This week, Ron writes about the Mayberry Method, 
which, by the way, has nothing to do with John Mayberry or Lee May or Barry Larkin. Ron also discusses his columns and other topics in the subscriber forums at BaseballHQ.com. You can get Ron's master notes delivered to your inbox every Friday with the free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, Ron also has his master notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for the week of February 18th. We put show number five of the 2012 fantasy baseball season into the record books. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to Baseball HQ Radio. I remind you to please tell your friends about our show and ask them to take a second and go over to iTunes and give our show five stars. Keeps us going. I also want to thank our guests today, starting with BaseballHQ.com minor league expert Rob Gordon. Gave us a terrific look at the prospects and suspects, as well as his minor league minute. Rob and Jeremy Deloney really do add an awful lot for Baseball HQ subscribers. Also want to thank our regular lineup from the best fantasy baseball website in the business, our Market Watch News analysts, Harold Nichols for the National League, and columnist Matt Beagle covering the American League. Matt was also our Market Pulse commentator this week. And our Master Notes commentator, BaseballHQ.com publisher Ron Chandler. We have some great features this week at BaseballHQ.com. Be sure to check out Robert Berger's research into what we can learn from elite stolen base performers, Doug Dennis looks at bullpens with weak closers, and Alex Becky has a proposal for a Universal League format in head-to-head gaming. Plus we have our regular features on playing time, facts and flukes, and buyer's guides. I'm Patrick Davitt. My Roto Strategy column on keeper calculations is on the site now, and my batting buyer's guide on spring training question marks comes out on Tuesday. In the meantime, I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Check out Baseball HQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next week with the wise guy of baseball and a great guide to Gene McCaffrey on another edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is available as a free podcast through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com slash radio where we have a complete archive of past editions as well. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the individuals speaking and not necessarily those of Fantasy Sports Ventures. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt. <laughs>